42 chapters about a man named Job. You know, when you actually look at God's Word, 42 chapters just for any man's life is a lot of Scripture. When you ask yourself, why this man? There's a lot of things about the man that we don't know. You study the book to find some, something about where the man lived, and all we know is that he lived in us. We're not sure exactly where that is. It's debated. People try to figure, is Job an Israelite, or did he live perhaps at the time of Abraham, a companion, or someone who is a contemporary of Abraham? And again, we come to this book of Job, and it's not clear. While Canaan is mentioned, that is, Jordan is mentioned in the book, yet there's no indication that this man traveled there or lived in that, that region. We don't know, for that matter, whether he was an Israelite or not. We don't know exactly when he lived. We can't tell exactly from the book whether he was, as I said, a companion of the time when, when Abraham lived or Jacob lived. Most would put him in that time period, but we don't know that for certain. There's a lot about this man that we don't know, and yet God gives us 42 chapters dealing with his life. And we have to ask the question, why? Why 42 chapters dealing with this man's life? Uh, we have other men of God in the Old Testament and in the New who are truly greatly used of God, and yet they don't have that much Scripture devoted to their life, to their time period. Why this man? When I was contemplating that question a number of years ago, the answer seemed to come very clearly. Job is representative of the suffering of God's people all through the ages. Anytime I would stand before my congregation and preach, there is somebody in that congregation who is suffering in one of the ways that Job suffered. Hopefully they're not suffering in all the ways at the same time that Job suffered. You suffer bereavement. Job suffered bereavement. That's a hard suffering. I have but one daughter. I could not imagine tonight the suffering and grief that would be in my heart if she were to leave and go to be with the Lord. Yet Job lost ten children all at once. Job suffered financially. Now, most of us, if we had a financial setback, it wouldn't be too drastic. But Job was a rich man. By the standards of his world, he was a rich man, and he lost everything. In my country, during the Great Depression... When there was the stock market crash, you had people jumping out of windows and ending their life because they'd lost all their wealth. Job had an illness that was incurable, as far as he was concerned. But it was not only an illness that was incurable, it was extremely painful. Uh, he wanted to die because of his illness. Job had a wife that didn't understand him. Said to him, curse God and die. Job had three miserable counselors who came to him. They too didn't understand Job. And they were more of a hindrance to Job than a help. He was misunderstood by those who claimed to be his friends. And of course, Job was under the attack of the evil one himself. In your lifetime and in my lifetime, we will be tested in the very areas that Job was tested in. And as I said, in any given service... There are going to be people in that service that are being tested in the very area that Job was tested. Paul, in speaking of the time in which we live now, he speaks of it as a time of suffering. And he looked to the future, which was a time of glory. 
In Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We all suffer now. And when we come to this book then, we have a book dealing with suffering and God's answer to it. I stress that tonight. It's God's answer to it. Job was looking for an answer. And it didn't come in the fashion that Job was looking Job was, as you read what he was saying, it was clear that he had in his own mind uh, something that he was looking for. But the answer didn't come in that fashion. The answer for Job was that he saw the glory of the Lord. We're not sure at this point when Job sees this glory that he understands all that transpired behind the scenes. That is all that was going on with the devil in the circumstances of Job. The answer the Lord gave to Job was to come to Job and show his own greatness and sovereignty to Job. Come to Job and show him that he was in control, that he was sovereign in Job's life. To call Job upon, call upon Job again to trust in him, to rest in him and his greatness and his glory. Tonight I want us to consider this theme as it's found in chapter 42 and verse 5. Job said, In verse 5, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Job saw something of the glory of the Lord, and that was the Lord's answer to Job. What was this manifestation? I would suggest to you tonight that it was a sudden manifestation of the Lord's glory. Now, Job expected in the future to see the Lord in glory. And the famous passage in chapter 19 speaks to that. Job says, for I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. I'm going to see him for myself. That's what Job spoke in the midst of his sufferings. Though his body be destroyed, I'm going to see him one day. And that has been the hope of God's people, both in the Old and New Testament. Psalm 17 and verse 15, David said, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I shall awake with thy likeness. Again, Paul said, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And John wrote in his epistle, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We have that blessed hope that one day we are going to see Christ in all of his glory. And the sufferings that we now go through will, will pale. The sufferings that we now go through will seem so insignificant in that day when we see him in all of his beauty and glory. But it wasn't to that day that the Job was speaking when he came to the Lord in prayer and desired that the Lord would manifest himself to him. In Job 31, Job prayed, Oh, that one would hear me. Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me. And that mine adversary had written a book. He desired that the Lord would come. Perhaps the greatest suffering that Job was going through was that in the time of his suffering, it seemed like the heavens were brass. 
In the very first chapter, we read of a man who knew what it was to worship the Lord and to come to the, to the Lord through the blood. He's pleading the blood not only over his own sins, but he's pleading the blood over his children's sins. There was a man who knew something about the power of the blood in his own life. Knew something about what it was to pray. And here it's as if the heavens were brass. And he's wanting the Almighty to come and to give an answer. He doesn't know all the reasons why he is suffering. And he knows that his friends are not speaking the truth. And he wants God to come and to reveal and to speak concerning his situation. Well, the Lord does come. And as I say, to me, as I read the Lord's coming and speaking to Job, it seems to be a very sudden coming. When you read through the book of Job, you find the three friends coming and they challenge Job. They, they accuse him of sin. They actually go to the point of making up sins to accuse him. Their idea was that, Job, if you're in this much calamity, if you've got this much trial, you must be hiding some great sin. Now, Job doesn't hide the fact that he's a sinner. He does have a redeemer. But his sins are under the blood. He was a man who had repented. He was a man who was pleading the blood over his sin. So he knew what they were saying was wrong. But he didn't have an answer as to why he was suffering. Every time these men come, Job answers them. Eliphaz comes, Job answers them. We have Bildad coming, and Job answers Bildad. And then Zophar takes his turn, and Job answers Zophar. And then they go back around again, and Job answers them. Every time they bring the challenge, Job answers them. And then we have a man who's sitting on the sidelines, as it were, silent. When they have exhausted their challenge to Job, and Job has answered them, then Elihu speaks. Turn, if you would, to chapter 38. Because when Elihu finishes in verse 24 of chapter 37, what you are anticipating is Job giving an answer. Elihu, too, challenges Job. Elihu also takes the time to rebuke Job for his attitude and his actions. What you're expecting in chapter 38 is Job speaking. He's answered everyone else. But what we read in verse 1 is, Then the Lord answered Job. Job didn't have to answer Elihu because the Lord answered Job's prayer. The Lord suddenly came to Job, and He came with the answer for Job, as we'll see in just a moment. Now, isn't that like the Lord often in His comings? You're reading the Scripture, and it seems to be a very dull book. Your soul is cleaving to the dust, as the psalmist would say. And then all of a sudden the Lord comes. And every word seems to be alive to you as he speaks to your heart through the book. You're in the place of prayer. And again, perhaps for you, you feel like the heavens are brass. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord comes in the midst of your praying. And all of a sudden you're at the throne and you wish you could stay there the rest of your life. You come to the house of God, weary and worn, and your heart's not prepared for worship. And you come and you sing, and all of a sudden the Lord comes, either in the singing or the reading of Scripture or the preaching of Scripture. The Lord oftentimes comes suddenly. How often it is that when you read of the Lord's coming and revival, though it may be prayed for and greatly desired by His church, yet it's often a sudden coming. It breaks in upon a meeting. Prayer is being made and the Lord descends. The Word of God is being preached and the Lord comes in a very unusual and powerful fashion. But we have the Lord coming to Job here in chapter 38. 
And when he comes, he not only comes suddenly, but he comes and he uses a symbol in his manifestation. Now, this is not unusual if the Lord does that, that he has some symbol that he's using and speaking to his people through. You note that he spoke to Moses through the burning bush. Here was a bush that was itself speaking to Moses. There was a fire in the bush, but the bush wasn't consumed. It was indicating that the God who indeed was speaking to Moses through the book was himself self-sufficient, that he could meet the very needs of Moses, that he could expend energy, he could give life, and yet himself not be harmed by it. That's what Moses would need there in the wilderness, was it not? A God who could meet all of his needs, a God who could not be exhausted, a God who was self-sufficient, eternal. But when we come to this chapter, the Lord speaks not through a burning bush to Job. What does he use? He uses a whirlwind. In chapter 38, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Out of the whirlwind. Look, if you would, to chapter 40. There is a break here. And Job answers the Lord. And then the Lord speaks to Job again. And we find in verse 6, it says, Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said. Now, what is a whirlwind? We speak of a tornado. I don't know if you have tornadoes here. We have them in my country. They're fierce. They cause this the strongest to fear and tremble. I was taking a plane trip from one of our churches, and during this trip, it was from one side of the United States to another, they were showing a movie just on tornadoes. And there was an aerial shot of a tornado going through a town. And it was, it was hitting transformers. And you would see these little sparks, as it were, in the community as this tornado ripped through the town, tearing up buildings. We can't control a tornado. What do you do when a tornado comes to you? You flee. It's the only thing you can do is get out of the way. And here the Lord takes a whirlwind and He sets the whirlwind before Job. That which would cause Job to fear. That which Job could not control. The very whirlwind was a message to Job. That what you can't control, I do control. That what you fear, I have no fear. I have complete control over. This whirlwind destroys, but it doesn't destroy me. It does my bidding. And the Lord used a whirlwind and set it before Job. And the, the very symbol, as it were, was a message to Job that while things seemed out of control and he had no answer and he was fearful, he was doubting, yet the Lord was in complete control of his circumstances at that very moment. The Lord spoke to him through the whirlwind. But how did the Lord manifest himself to Job? When you go in Scripture, there are some visions of the Lord that are given. You have Isaiah seeing the Lord high and exalted upon the throne. You have a vision of Ezekiel as he saw the Lord in his glory. But you don't have such a description in the book of Job. He says, now mine eye seeth thee. Well, Job, how did you see the Lord? The Lord made himself known to Job by faith. As Job heard the speaking voice. And the questions and statements made to Job were making Job reflect upon the Lord and His greatness and His glory and His goodness. When you look at these questions, there are a number of different kinds of questions. You have a section dealing with questions about God's creation. And then you have a section dealing with questions, I believe, dealing with God's salvation. In the section dealing with creation in chapters 38 and 39, he begins by asking questions about the heavens. And then he asks questions about the animals round about Job. 
Now, here was a man, Job, he lived under the heavens every day. He took for granted the fact there were stars, there were uh, the sun, the moon. It was all around him. So the Lord was asking Job questions of things he knew. And then there were animals. I think every animal that was brought to Job, Job had some knowledge of. Yet the Lord asked some questions of Job that he couldn't answer. And to this very day, I don't think we can answer these questions, at least all these questions that are put to us. The questions were not for the benefit of Job as far as him giving knowledge to the Lord that the Lord didn't have. The questions were given to Job to humble his heart. And the questions were given to Job to show Job the greatness and the glory of his God. Let's look just at a few samplings of these questions. And that's all we can do tonight. There's 50 to 60 questions here. And I would dare say if you went down through these questions and you began to meditate and try to answer these questions, you would say with Job, mine eye seeth thee. You would begin to understand something of the greatness and the glory of your God. Look at the very first question asked to Job. In chapter 38 and verse 4, the Lord comes to Job and he says, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare it if thou hast understanding. Let that be your essay tonight. You're being called upon by God to enter his schoolroom. And God is saying to you, I want you to answer this question. Not just in in a one word answer or, or, or a simple sentence where you say, I wasn't there. No, let your mind dwell on this question. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You see, in suffering, how often we get turned inward with our problems and we lose sight of the fact that there's a great and glorious God who rules and has made this world. When he begins to contemplate that question, he would have to answer what? That he was a creature of time. He wasn't there when God made the the earth. He didn't help God. He didn't give God any wisdom. He didn't, with his strength, do anything to add to the creation. In other words, in this very first question, Job is made to think of the fact that he's a creature of time, but God is eternal. He's dependent upon the God who made the world. But here is the God who is self-sufficient and made all things without the help of man. He is dependent. And all power flows from this God to the creation that he has made. So where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? But it's not just where were you, Job. What do you know? Job was trying to answer questions that his friends brought to him. And he didn't have an answer. And he wanted God to come and answer the question. And the Lord comes to Job and he deals with Job's knowledge. What do you know, Job? Isn't that something of what he is saying in verse 5? Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who has stretched the line upon it? Can you answer that question, Job? Again, as you go down through this chapter, there are a number of questions that he asked Job concerning Job's knowledge. Knowest thou, verse 33, the ordinances of the heaven? Do you know those things, Job? Happens every day. You're counting on the the heavens being orderly. You're counting on everything being structured. Can you explain to me these things that are going on around about you? As I said, he asked him many questions about the world around him and even the creatures that are in that world. Look at verse 20. That thou shouldst take it to the bound thereof, and that thou shouldst know the paths to the house thereof. Knowest thou it because thou wast then born, or because the number of thy days is great? Job, what do you know 
about light and darkness. Really, what do you know? In chapter 39, in verse 1, Knowest thou the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth, or canst thou mark when the hinds do calve? Now, there is some of this that perhaps we would know as a community, but as individuals, do you know the answers to these questions? And yet, when we want God to come to us and explain to us everything going on in the universe, or perhaps our particular part of the world, and He doesn't do it, Could we even take it in if he did? Do we need to know all that's going on in order to trust him? You see, Job was seeing something of the greatness of the mind of God, that the Lord knew everything. And he's being asked questions about the world around about him, which would make him feel very small in his own eyes. Later he would say that he felt vile. Later he would say that he would repent in sackcloth and asses. It was not just what do you know, Job, but what can you do? He comes to Job and he speaks to Job about what he can do. Verse 31, canst thou bind the sweet influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Canst thou bring forth Maseroth in his season or canst thou guide Arcturus with his sons? Verse 34, canst thou lift up thy voice to the clouds that abundance of waters may cover thee? Canst thou send lightnings that they may go and say unto thee, here we go, or here we are? What can you do, Job? Job is feeling his own impotence by these questions. But the answer to these questions, the Lord can bind the influence of the Pleiades. The Lord can send his lightning. The Lord can control the storm. It's at his bidding. It follows his orders. In these questions, Job is seeing the glory of God's greatness and power. Seeing the sovereignty of God. Our God is sovereign. He knows everything. And he works all things out after the counsel of his own will. And that's what Job needed to be reminded of in his sufferings. God was in control. Whether or not Job could understand it wasn't as important as that Job understood that the Lord knew what was going on. That the Lord was in control. That the Lord had complete control over the circumstances. Our God, who is a God of love and compassion and grace, when we have trials that come, we have to be reminded that He is in control. It's easy to say that until the trials come. Two years ago, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And in that dark time, we were beginning to wonder, would she be here at this time period? And I tell you, when the, the clouds of darkness roll in, the only thing to sustain your heart is to know that your good and gracious God is in complete control. And that he does all things well. The Lord came to Job, and in these questions, he was trying to get Job to take his eyes off from himself and his circumstances and to see the fact that the Lord was ruling and reigning. He was in complete control. Things were out of Job's control, yes, but not out of the Lord's control. And the Lord was bringing Job back to what? That place of humble submission and trust. You don't need to know everything that's going on. And you don't need to feel that you have power to control everything. What we need is to know that our God knows everything and that He has power to control everything. And we're going to trust Him. We're going to trust Him. Now, there are times when Job certainly uttered that very truth. He could say, yea, though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. 
But like the heart of all of us, while there are times in our suffering, we do trust the Lord and the Lord gives grace. Yet there are other times in that suffering that our eyes get off the Lord and we begin to wonder, we begin to doubt. What is the answer? It's to come back and to see the greatness and the glory of our God and to rest in that. The first set of questions dealt with the creation. And again, I'm not going to go through these questions other than to be suggestive tonight. But the second set of questions deal with salvation. Turn, if you would, to chapter 40, where the questions begin again. And then the Lord says, all right, come and answer some more questions, Job. I'm not done yet. The Lord, in his mercy and grace, was going to show Job some great things and great truths about the salvation that he brings. Again, out of the world when he comes and he speaks to Job and he says, Gird up thy loins now like a man, and I will demand of thee, declare unto me, Wilt thou also disannul my judgments? Now, there are many today who think that they can disannul the Lord's judgment. When you speak of them, when you speak to them concerning their need of salvation, they don't feel a need of salvation. They're in control, and nobody's ever going to bring them into account. Both in the Old Testament and in the New, it's very clearly stated that the wicked will give an account to the Creator, that they will. Give an account for what they have said, for how they have lived, for what they have done with their life. God is very emphatic on that point, both in the Old Testament and in the New. God comes to Job and he asks a simple question. You're going to disannul my judgment. You know, when God comes in his glory, there is no answer to that question by sinful man. Oh, there are men now who do not see the glory of God, do not feel his presence, and they can be very bold as they speak against God. But when they're in his presence and he asks the questions, will you disannul my judgment? They don't have an answer then. Not only was the question asked about disannulling judgment, but the question is asked after that in verse 8 of chapter 40, Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Will you reject the judgment? Now the question is, will you reprove the judge? I have had those tell me, as I've witnessed to them concerning the gospel, when I get into God's presence, this is what I'm going to tell him. This is how he's treated me, and it's all his fault. There'll be nobody in God's presence when they're in the presence of this glorious God who created them, who's going to be answering God in that fashion, who's going to be reproving and condemning him. Because he's righteous in all of his doings. And then he goes another step. You can't get out from under the judgment. And the judge cannot be reproved. That means you're going to be judged. You need a savior. Job, can your arm save you? Can you save yourself? And he asks the question in verse 9. Hast thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency, and array thyself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold everyone that is proud, and abase him. Look on everyone that is proud, and bring him low, and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together, and bind their faces in secret. Then will I also confess unto thee that thine own right hand can save thee. Job, you have an arm like mine. Can you save yourself from the judgment that is coming? This, this is the test, Job. Put on your best garments. Put on your majesty. And come to the proud man. And, and from the array of your beauty, humble that man in the dust. 
Job couldn't do that. Nor could you or I. And the answer is, if you can't do that, Job, your hand cannot bring you salvation. But the first question he asks is, do you have an arm like God? Because, Job, I can do that. I can take the proudest man and I can humble him in the dust, meaning my arm can save. Job, yours can't, but mine can. Who is the arm of the Lord that brings salvation to the people of God? In Isaiah, it's very clear. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 59, it says when he, excuse me, he saw that when there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor, therefore his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. The arm of the Lord that saves the people of the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Just as he is the creator, so also he is the savior. And Job's attention here at this point is being brought to the arm of the Lord. The ability of the Lord to save the one who would actually come and save. He's being made to think upon. Job, you can't save yourself. This work of salvation is God's work and God's alone. Job, you don't have the power to save. Again, to show Job his impotence and the Lord's greatness, he brings two creatures to Job's attention. We're not sure at this point who these creatures are in that we look in the earth now. We don't see these creatures. Some have have said perhaps these are some of these dinosaurs that scientists talk about. We don't know because we don't have creatures that we have seen walking the earth like these two creatures. One is a land creature. The word is behemoth. The name is behemoth. The name in Hebrew is used oftentimes in the Old Testament for just a land animal. What kind of an animal is this? The other one is Leviathan. This is a sea creature. And again, the Lord brings these creatures to Job because they were creatures outside of his control, creatures that he would fear to approach. And yet the Lord makes very clear to Job he's in control of those creatures. He has a description of Behemoth in chapter 40, verses 15 to 24. But look, if you would, at verse 15, and then again at verse 19. Behold now, Behemoth, which I made with thee, he eateth grass as an ox. Before he actually describes the greatness of this animal, he makes it clear to Job, I created this animal, I'm in control. And when you come down then to verse 19, it says, He is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him, that is the Lord who made him, can make his sword to approach him. Now, Job wouldn't want to come near this animal. If the Lord says, I can approach him, he's not that fierce. My sword can come near unto him. My sword can devour him. My sword can destroy him. Job, what kind of an arm do you have to save? Can you make by your majesty the proud, humble in the dust? I can do that. Job, can your arm approach this animal, this behemoth that I have made? My arm made him, and I have control over him, and I can destroy him. And then he takes him to Leviathan, this sea creature. Again, a creature like none that we have ever seen in our day. And look at verse 10 and 11 when he speaks concerning him. He says, none is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whosoever is under the whole heaven is mine. You wouldn't want to stir this animal up, Job. But I'm not afraid of this animal. He's under my power and under my control. 
In other words, the questions concerning these two animals are all under the heading of salvation. Job, is your arm strong enough to save? You're coming one day to a judgment. You're coming one day to a judge who cannot be condemned. Whose arm are you going to trust in in that day? And the answer is, I'm the only one that you can trust in. My salvation is what you trust in. Isn't that the message throughout the Old and New Testament? God is trying to get us to stop trusting in ourselves. Oftentimes, he humbles us. He brings us in the dust that we might come looking for his salvation. The Holy Spirit begins to convict us of sin. He begins to show us the beauty of Christ. And then he renews our will that we might come and lay hold of this Christ. The whole Bible is trying to get us from trusting in our pride, in our works, and coming to trust in the work of another. It's only in His shed blood that we have the removal of sins. It's only in His imputed righteousness that we have a standing before God that pleases God. It's in Christ that we are made the children of God. It's in Christ that we become joint heirs. It's in Christ that we receive eternal life. It's in God's strong arm, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're saved. Brethren, when you and I are suffering in this world, we have to be reminded this is not all there is. We're just passing through right now. And we can build our castles in this place of sand, or we can look to this time that's coming in the future and know that we have a home secure in heaven where nobody can break in and steal our reward. We're going to a place where we're going to see the Savior and be with Him for all eternity. All that we see now, we'll say goodbye to one day. Except the souls of men. God has made it such that he's going to change this earth one day. The theologians debate as to when it's going to happen, but they're all in agreement. It's going to happen. It's going to change this earth. And you and I are heading to a glory, an eternal state where there will be no sin. There'll be no doubting. There'll be no fear. We'll be in his presence, serving without hindrance of sin. And we'll be glorifying him for all eternity. That's where we're going. That's where we're going. In the New Testament, Job is mentioned one time. The book of Job is called Wisdom Literature by commentators. And when you come to the New Testament, there is a, an epistle that deals with wisdom. That is the wisdom that is given to us in the book of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and also Job. It's the book of James. And in the fifth chapter of James, James brings uh, instruction to those who are suffering greatly. It seems that they were working and not being paid. And it actually went to the extent that this non-payment was costing them their life. And there was no recourse. There was no court system that would hear them. There was no human judge that they could appeal to. So Job took their attention away from this present earth. And they took their attention to the coming of the great judge in the day when he returns. And he makes all things right. And then he brings to their attention Job himself. And he tells them to remember the patience, the endurance of Job. And that in the end, the Lord was full of compassion and pity toward Job. And isn't that what we see? After the Lord came and he showed them his glory, he didn't explain in chapter 42 all that was going on about the trial. He came to Job and he saw, showed Job his glory as the creator and sustainer of the world. He showed Job his glory as the Savior. Job is humbled in the dust. He's resting in, in this great and glorious God. 
And then God restores to Job all that he lost. God brings us to that point. That when the suffering of this earth, earth reaches the point that you have to say goodbye to this earth, when you have no control over the circumstances and there's nobody to appeal to, no doctor can help you, there's no judge who's going to intercede, you know that death is imminent. Remember Job, that God came to Job and he showed him his glory and he restored all. Brethren, you and I will say goodbye, we'll lose everything in one day. We're going to gain everything in that day as well. We're going to leave this earth and we're going to step into the presence of our Creator and Savior. We're going to see the Redeemer for ourselves. And He's got glorious things planned for His people. He is, with His strong arm, going to bring us in to glory. Some of these things Job knew. And yet at the same time, he didn't know the glory of what he was saying. He says in verse 3 of chapter 42, I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Tonight we've been singing about glory. You and I have uttered things in our songs that are doctrinal, that are orthodox, that are true. How long will we be in the presence of the one who's created us and redeemed us? How long will we be there before we're going to say the same thing Job says here? I have uttered things I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. We're heading to glory. Your eye and my eye, we're going to see the King in all of his glory. Things we've been singing about will become a more present reality than even now. What is it that we need now? We need to be humbled now. We need to see our own inadequacy, yes. But what we need to see beyond that is the Lord in His glory, in His control, in His sovereign grace, saving us and bringing us to glory. Because if we see Him in that fashion, we'll have the ability then given to trust Him as our sovereign Lord. How do you see Him tonight? Are you fighting with Him, warring with Him? You trying to make sense out of this world of suffering by yourself, without his help, without his intervention? This world will become a world of vanity to you when you remove God from it and then try to explain it. That's what Ecclesiastes tells us. The only way you can understand this world is to know that he is in control. He's working all things out according to the counsel of his own will. And he's going to bring you to glory. He's having great and infinite mercy upon our souls tonight. And he's going to bring us all the way to glory. He has determined that. And we're but a heartbeat away from seeing that glory. Are you trusting in him for that Mercy and grace that saves. Or are you trusting in your weak and feeble arm? If you're trusting in your weak and feeble arm, then maybe the Lord needs to do to you what he did to Job. Needs to break the pride of the flesh. The strength of what you're resting in that you might come to rest in him. There are those here tonight, I'm sure, that could give testimony. The Lord did that very thing in your heart. He took you and he broke you. In order that you might see his glory and want him in salvation. We all come the same way. Humble before God. Seeking him for salvation on his terms. Being willing to take the Savior that he provides. And to rest in his arm to save. Are you resting in him tonight? If not, come and seek this God who does save and shows infinite mercy. 
And if tonight you say, I am resting in him, but my life seems to be out of control. There are things happening to me that I have no power over. He's in control. And the one who loved you enough to bring you to himself in salvation will bring you all the way to glory. Rest in him. Trust in him. He's all he's going to bring each one of us to that place where we will see him in his glory. Let's pray. Are you resting in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight? I never met you before this day. I don't know the hearts of those gathered here. But I do know the Savior by his grace. He's had mercy upon me. And I would invite you to come and take him. Come and bow before him as your Lord and your Savior. He's a wonderful Savior. He's a gracious shepherd. He's the great shepherd. and He will bring you all the way to glory. What you cannot do, what I cannot do in salvation, he has done and will do. He will bring us all the way to glory. Come and throw yourself upon him. Come and trust in him. Come and lay hold of him for salvation. I'm your servant for Jesus' sake. And if I can help you in the things of God, uh, to take time to further point you to Christ, Dr. Cairns and I are both here tonight, and that would be our great delight. Are you one of God's people? We have a great Lord. One day we're going to see that in a greater way than we could ever imagine here below. May the Lord give us energy and courage to serve him and to trust him, even in the dark days, that we might prove the greatness and the glory of our God. Our Father in heaven, we have been considering what you showed to your servant Job when his eyes saw thee by faith. When in the very scripture of God, he saw something of thy glory. Lord, we ask that as we would study and contemplate thy word, as we would think on these questions, yea, on the whole revelation that thou hast given of thyself, Lord, you would open our understanding. You would open our heart in a greater way to yourself, that we might glory in thee, that we might praise thee, that we might trust thee. Lord, we know that this is a time of suffering. And yet, what is that to be compared with the glory that you will reveal to your people? Lord, help us, like Job, to rest in thee and to see thy glory and to humbly submit ourselves to thee and to do thy will with joy. Lord, give us such grace, we pray. Lord, we would ask this night for any here without Christ. Make this today that they bow before thee and they come and trust in thee for salvation. Lord, we believe that salvation is of the Lord. And Lord, we ask that you would demonstrate that power and grace even in our midst this night. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.